Once again, our passage is Mark chapter 10. The topic is divorce. Divorce is prevalent in our world today. We've all heard the horror statistics that 50% of marriages end in divorce and that Christians are no better than the world. Thankfully, I, I believe both of those stats are false. After further research, um, especially when one considers devoted practicing Christians rather than those who simply claim some affiliation with Christianity, um, for those, the numbers for divorces, uh, the number is much lower than the world. But we do certainly suffer from a convenience-defined view of marriage in our world today. And there's been a rise in no-fault divorces just because it was legalized a few decades ago in this country. You know the traditional marriage vows. We really like the first half of the list, but we don't really like the second half. We'll be married from this day forward, but we don't want to say until death do us part. We want to say we'll be married for better, but not necessarily for worse. Uh, We'll stick with it for richer, but when things get poorer, it's not convenient anymore. And for some reason, the vows have switched sickness and health. We like the health. We don't like the sickness. I also understand that the discussion of divorce can rip open raw wounds. The topic is one of hurt or emotions or guilt, or memories of the most painful days of one's life. So our focus today is on what God says, on what Jesus has said in his word about divorce. So let's hear God's word from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. As we go through this passage today, we're going to really break it down into four sections. There are a lot of things going on behind the scenes of this discussion culturally. So that's going to be our our first point, is the cultural discussion that the Pharisees bring to Jesus. The cultural discussion followed by the intent to kill. Then we'll move into the biblical discussion that Jesus and the Pharisees engage in, followed by the intent to give life. The cultural discussion, the intent to kill, the biblical discussion, the intent to give life. Let's look at the cultural discussion. In the Jewish world, the discussion on divorce revolved around Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It's the only passage in the Old Testament that deals specifically with divorce. 
let me go ahead and summarize for you what these verses say. It provides a setting, and then it gives a command at the end. Here's the setting. A man and a woman have divorced because he has found some indecency in her. Second, she leaves with a certificate of divorce and remarries another man. Third, she is made single again, either by similar divorce or by being widowed. And then there's a command. The first man may not take her again to be his wife. So there's a lot of context. There's a lot of setting. There's a lot of assumptions going on. Assuming the man and the woman have been divorced. She has left with the certificate of divorce. She is once again either widowed or divorced. Then there's the command that the man may not take the woman to be his wife again. The reason is, Jesus says, or excuse me, Deuteronomy says, is because she has been defiled. Whether, presumably that is by the divorce and the remarriage, which Jesus calls adultery here in our passage. But also it is to protect her. Because that woman could have been misused by that man, that first man. Because once she is either divorced again or widowed, she then either gets her dowry back or receives the inheritance of her husband. And then that man is going to potentially want to marry her again in order for finan- to, to make use of her for financial gain. And so in some senses, I think in a real sense, this passage is meant to protect that woman from such abuse. Therefore, this passage does not actually address whether divorce is allowed nor what the proper grounds for divorce are. The Deuteronomy passage addresses the proper recourse in the case that divorce has already happened in order to minimize the defilement of God's people. Yet, the cultural conversation that the Pharisees bring to Jesus here is not focusing on the intent of that passage. Instead, what it's done is it's focused in on that first phrase, specifically that phrase, the man has found some indecency in his wife. And so now the conversation has become, what is that indecency? Jesus, what do you say gives a man a right to give a certificate of divorce to his wife and to send her away because of some indecency? In fact, they have totally misused the verse. There were two misunderstandings in this day, two main thoughts about what was proper. The first misinterpretation was the strict interpretation by the Shammai school. They would say divorce can be pious. That word pious, um, I found from a commentator. I thought it's a really helpful way to describe um, this, this sense of divorce that they're trying to get at. Divorce can be pious or respectable or proper if the wife's indecency is moral indecency, specifically adultery. So if the wife commits adultery, then the husband can give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's the strict school. The freer school, the Hillel school of thought, says that divorce can be pious or respectable or proper if the wife's indecency is anything the man does not like. Something as benign, this has been found in Jewish writings, something as benign as burning the food or if a man has found another that is fairer than she is. This is what we popularly would call, potentially, the no-fault divorce. Difference of, of thought, separate, go our ways. So the Pharisees are asking Jesus his view. What do you think? These are the two main discussions in our world. Pick your side, Jesus. They seem to be coming from the freer understanding, the Hillel school, 
that no-fault divorce can be done at any time as long as a certificate is given. That's the cultural discussion. But the intent to kill is implicit in the Pharisees' approach to Jesus here. The Pharisees actually are not interested in what Jesus has to say. They are actually here to trap him. The Pharisees have actually come, not out of curiosity, but because they are on a mission to kill Jesus. And here's how we know that. There are actually five clear things here in our passage that or in the context that show us that the Pharisees are here to try to kill Jesus. First of all, Jesus has already warned his disciples that he is going to be rejected and killed by the religious leaders. So here he is face to face with the religious leaders. Second of all, there's a change of scene here. You notice in the first couple verses, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. He's drawing near to Jerusalem. You may remember early on the structure of Mark. There are really three main sections. There's the Galilee section where Jesus is teaching his disciples and training them. Then there is the journey to Jerusalem. And then there is the phase, the final part of Mark where they are in Jerusalem. We have left Galilee now for good. So far in the book, we've been in Galilee. Jesus has been in Galilee teaching his disciples. And we now, for the first time, have left Galilee and are headed to Jerusalem. In the first part, when we were in Galilee, the main questions were, who is Jesus and what does it look like to follow Jesus? And the answers were, Jesus is a suffering servant and to follow him is to be a suffering servant of the suffering servant and to deny oneself, to take up your cross and to follow him. At the end of chapter 10 here in verse 33, feel free to glance over there. It's a very revealing verse. It says, Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Coming to Jerusalem is coming to death for Jesus. The third, the third reason we know that they are out to kill Jesus is because Mark tells us they were there to test Jesus. Mark has used the word test a few times in this book so far. The only ones to test Jesus are the Pharisees and Satan. It's not good company. The purpose of this test could be to try to force Jesus to make some statement against popular opinion, the Hillel school of thought, or it can make him sound like he's contradicting Deuteronomy 24. They've tested Jesus prior, but what was actually revealed was their misunderstanding of the law in chapter 3 as Jesus was proving to them that the Sabbath is to be used for good. And they've debated theology with him like this in chapter 7 as they propped up their own man-made traditions, the tradition of the elders, against God's word. These tests that they present are never genuine questions. They are meant to destroy. Fourth, we know that the Pharisees intend to kill Jesus because in chapter 3, their, their intention was laid out very clearly. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so far, we have seen no change of intent. And lastly, I think perhaps the most clear reason that we know that they are out to kill Jesus is because of where they find themselves and what they discuss with him. They have found themselves now in Judea, east of the Jordan. This was the region belonging to Herod Antipas. Herod has been through a divorce himself. And his new wife Herodias 
was not a fan of John the Baptist because John the Baptist spoke against their divorce, against Herodias' divorce, against Philip, in order to marry Herod. Chapter 6 explains this. It says in verse 17, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And what do the Pharisees do? They come and ask Jesus, Is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? So we know Jesus' conclusion in this passage today is not going to be received well by the Pharisees because his superior knowledge of Scripture is going to fuel their ire. That's the intent to kill. So let's move into the biblical discussion in which they engage. This is the, the heart of what's going on in this passage. When asked about divorce, Jesus answered as he often does with a question. Their answer uses Deuteronomy 24. And their answer reveals that there are two very different understandings of this passage in the scene. There's their view and there's Jesus's view. And Jesus actually does not fall into either one of those views uh, that were being debated within popular Jewish culture. So the Pharisees' response when Jesus said, what does Moses, what did Moses command you? In verse 3, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus asked, what did Moses command? They responded, Moses allowed. There's a difference between a command and allowance. But actually, as we just saw in Deuteronomy 24, it's not even an allowance of divorce. It's simply a recognition that it had happened, and then the command follows that. So they're entirely misusing and not even answering Jesus' question. Jesus says, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote this command. It's because of your hardness of heart. The divorce that precedes this command in Deuteronomy 24 reveals your hardness of heart. The Pharisees didn't operate as if divorce carried with it any weight of sin, It continued, marriage continued to be a means of selfishness and laziness and greed for men. Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, which is interesting because that hardness of heart is attributed to the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's because of your hardness of heart that Moses gave you this command. In other words, you are as stubborn as the Israelites of old. Israel was known for their hard hearts against God and against his covenant for blatant and egregious idolatry over and over and over again, destructive unfaithfulness to their covenant God, the breaking of that union. Jeremiah 3, verses 6 and 7, we find these, these words. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. That's the guilt of the hard-hearted Israelites. And Jesus says, that is your heart, Pharisees. 
This is the underlying issue behind their desire for divorce. And it's not hardness of heart specifically against their wives, though that is not excluded. This is a hardness of heart against God. He has held out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He has loved the rebels. He has loved his idolatrous children. But they have turned their hearts away and have not come back when repentance was offered. So Jesus explains the underlying understanding of marriage to answer their question. And he's not engaging with this passage that they misused. He engages with the core, the beginning, the foundation. He goes back to Genesis. Jesus is illustrating to us here a wonderful example of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. This is something we need to do. Make sure that we understand the things that are clear. We use to understand the rest of Scripture. The Pharisees missed the crucial part, the heart, the fuller understanding. This is the important part. Listen, if you have not listened so far, here is the important part of Jesus' answer and of marriage. He quotes Genesis 1. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This is God's design, that male and female would be united in marriage. And then he immediately quotes Genesis 2.24 and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is giving them an answer with scripture that is clear. And he, he makes clear these are the permanent foundational truths about marriage from creation, from the very beginning. If the Pharisees had understood these underlying things, God's design for marriage, then they would have viewed Deuteronomy 24 very differently, and they would have viewed it properly. They would have understood what Jesus immediately then, then tells them as he interprets these passages. He's emphasizing two things about marriage. First of all, it is a union. Second of all, it is permanent. First of all, it is a union. In verse 8, he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. They say it takes newlyweds three to five years to stop thinking about the marriage as me and you and to start thinking about it as us. Three to five years. I don't know if I'm there yet. The sanctity of the marriage union, the godly design that when a man and a woman are joined together, it is for life. That is what Jesus is emphasizing when he says they are no longer two, but one flesh. Separation by certificate is not an option on the table. Jesus says it's permanent. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is saying, who are you to make a choice against what God himself has designed? And then Jesus finds himself once again in the house with the disciples, as is often the case. And he's explaining to them again something that they didn't understand. And, and they say, tell us more. And he says, even further, that to divorce and to remarry someone else is to commit adultery. It's to commit adultery against another person, which is evidence that marriage is intended to be permanent and is not to be broken. Because if it is, then it is adultery. 
And what Jesus actually does in this passage would have blown the Jewish hearers away. Because he says, not only can a man commit adultery against a woman, but a woman can commit adultery against a man. Up until then, it had only been a woman who could commit adultery. And now Jesus is elevating the dignity of women in his answer. Either one can offend the other. The Roman world allowed women to divorce, and we know that Mark was written, we're pretty sure Mark was written to an audience in Rome. So it would make sense that this would be communicated in Mark's gospel. Either way, Jesus is affirming the equal dignity of husband and wife. Before we continue, I want to I pause for a brief application for all of us. Married for a long time, newlyweds, those about to be married, those who long to be married. Marriage is not designed for your comfort or your fun or your pleasure. Marriage is a deep bonding of two people into one. It's a mystery that we don't understand. It's a place where God is concerned primarily about your holiness, not your happiness. And that is the complete opposite of what our world is telling us. We can, we can imagine that the Pharisees, when they heard this answer, Mark doesn't tell us their answer. I, I think we, we can probably pretty well assume that they weren't happy. Jesus has once again taken away from them another self-righteous right of theirs to divorce when desired. The conclusion here in the biblical discussion that Jesus says there is no such thing as a divorce of convenience. There is no divorce due to differences. There is no pious divorce. There is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. We learn from this text and others that the only way a marriage ends is when the one flesh union of marriage is slain by the unfaithfulness of one party. Whether by unfaithfulness during the marriage or by unfaithfulness upon divorce and remarriage. I'd like us to consider the parallel passage in Matthew for a moment before we move into the intent to give life. Because Matthew tells a parallel story, the same story, but he includes a detail that Mark has left out. Jesus allows for divorce and remarriage in certain instances. Matthew 19.9 says, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Not that divorce is ever the preferred option, not that divorce is ever good, but in the case that one has been, someone has been committed adultery against them, if they are the innocent one who has been offended in the marriage, that is clearly an exception where that person may leave and remarry without committing adultery. There are so many questions and approaches and explanations about what specifically Jesus means by sexual, sexual sin there in Matthew 19. That word in Greek has been debated time and time again. 
But even no matter how you interpret it, divorce is not commanded. It is simply recognized and permitted, but not as favorable. Reconciliation is the better option whenever possible. Reconciliation is what is encouraged. And sometimes, though, the biblical authors have made it clear that is not possible. But if it is possible, reconciliation is the right way to go. In Jeremiah 3.8, I, I read earlier the offense that Israel had committed against God. Let me read you the next verse in Jeremiah 3.8. Here's the Cliff Notes version. God divorced Israel. Jeremiah 3.8 says, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. God rightfully divorced Israel because they had broken their faithfulness to him. They had played the whore and worshipped other gods. And so God rightfully divorced them. So where does that leave us? leaves us grateful that he has chosen to reconcile with his wayward people. You think of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea, who represents God, went and pursued his wife even after she was a prostitute time and time again and gave herself away. And in Jeremiah 3.12, God says to his people, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful declares the Lord, I will not be angry forever. Reconciliation is what God chose. I also understand that reconciliation is not always possible when we consider earthly marriages. There's another exception, and that is when the unbelieving partner in a marriage, when there is a, a believer and an unbeliever, if the unbelieving partner separates, Paul says, let it be so. Willful desertion by the unbelieving spouse is also grounds for the believer who has been, who has been neglected to go and to remarry without committing adultery. As I talk about this, maybe you or someone that you know, someone close to you, maybe has been divorced. And I'm not here tonight to adjudicate whether a divorce was permissible by these standards or not. I'm grateful that God has given us the design for a church government that cares for people who walk through this. I believe it is the job of the elders to understand each situation where divorce is considered and to encourage toward reconciliation when at all possible and to decide whether a divorce has biblical ground, where, whether someone has biblical grounds for divorce. I'm grateful that that does not ever rest on one person's decision, but on the wisdom of the plurality of elders that oversee a church. It is their job to shepherd the hurting through difficult times. The hope is that as they shepherd... The hope is that they would guide everybody, every one of their sheep, to understand God's design for the permanency of marriage, for the gift that it can be, and to not see divorce as an option of convenience or preference or simply because of differences.
And so lastly, that moves us into our last section. Marriage was actually intended to give life. The intent to give life. We have to remember the context in Mark. Every passage we've gone through so far, we've looked at how it fits in what's going on, and we have to do that here too. Jesus is training and has been training his disciples of what it looks like to live in the kingdom. As he is on his way to self-sacrifice, he is encouraging them to self-sacrifice. To live in God's kingdom is to die to self. If a man finds some indecency and defines it in a way that is convenient to him as the Jewish religious leaders were discussing. If a man finds some indecency in his wife and defines that as grounds for divorce, that understanding makes marriage revolve around the man and his desires and his designs rather than seeing marriage as the means of dying to self and glorifying Christ. Where do we grow but in sickness, not in health? Where does our faith go deeper but in the worse? not in the better, when we're poorer, not richer, and in the face of death, not sitting on the beach. Marriage is often called a great sanctifier. You've probably heard that. Or someone told me, if you want a constant mirror calling out your areas in need of sanctification, get married. I see in my own heart this tendency to miss the core of God's commands and to let the letter of the law provide loopholes for me to do what I want to do. That's what the Pharisees were doing here with this law. That's what we do with so many laws. We say, well, I know technically by the letter I can squeeze this in and I technically might not be sinning, but I know full well deep down God's design from the beginning precludes that. It's not an option. Yet I say that it is. Instead of viewing the law as a means of self-sacrifice, dying to myself, saying no to what I want. And marriage is not excluded from this discipleship and growth in the kingdom of God. Husbands and wives are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5.21 says. Specifically, wives submit to your own husbands, paralleled with as the church submits to Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There are beautiful, eternal, salvific truths paralleled and connected and intricately interwoven with marriage and that union. And as we embrace that and are willing participants... In what God is teaching us in marriage, we start to understand a little bit more about what it means to be married to Christ, our Savior. Marriage foreshadows Christ with his bride, as we're going to see on that last day, that wedding feast. Paul says, this mystery of leaving father and mother and being united to his wife and becoming one flesh is profound. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God works through marriage to help us see what Christ has done in his love for us. And then Paul applies this to all of us. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself. and Let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then the face, the reality of brokenness and the fact that divorce happens. 
Let the picture of marriage give us hope for restoration on that last day. Knowing that one day all brokenness is going to be fixed. Knowing that one day unfaithful people like us, we have real hope. All offenses will be made right. And all unfaithfulness against God and against one another will be removed as far as the east is from the west because of what Jesus has done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would comfort those who hurt when such a topic is brought up. Pray that you would encourage those who are striving to be faithful as we look at your word in such a way as this. We pray that your spirit would be at work and take these passages and these truths, apply them to our hearts and to our minds and to the way that we live. Would we be a place that cares for one another, that asks the tough questions, that supports one another, even when marriages are difficult? I pray that this church would be a place of reconciliation of all kinds and of forgiveness, and one where we start by receiving the reconciliation that you have given us through Jesus Christ. Would he be our everything? It's in his name we pray. Amen.